iron pruing, and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you. Lest you should say, My idol did them, my carved image and my metal image commanded them. You have heard, now see this. And will you not declare it? For from this time forth I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago, before today, you have never heard of them. Lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known. From of old your ear has not been opened, for I knew that you would surely deal treacherously. And from that time, from the time of birth, you were called a rebel. For my name's sake I defer my anger, for the sake of my praise I restrain it for you. That I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. But for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. We talked about how uh, the last couple of weeks where Isaiah uh, um, has been incredibly encouraging. Right? It's been almost upbeat. This week he's gonna um, he's gonna put on kind of his uh, uh, his more traditional property shoes, and he's going to say to them or give to them a prophecy uh, that is probably harder for them to hear. It is not as upbeat. In fact, it, it's quite the opposite. And yet, at the end of the day, I think the result is incredibly encouraging. So let, let's just dive into what Isaiah has to, to say to them. And he's going to begin by saying, Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. Basically, he says, listen, you guys are a bunch of fakes. You're out there. You're claiming that you're this. You're saying that you're that. You're that. But you're not doing it in truth or, or, or right. So he says to, says to them, you call yourself the Jacob. You call the name of Israel. You came from the waters of Judah. You swear by the name of Yahweh. And you confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. He's calling them uh, hypocrites, right? Which is not a, a word from their time. Hypocrites actually comes from a, from a, a, a later era. But the, the concept is the same. You guys are claiming to be followers. Yahweh, you swear by his name, you claim his allegiance, but it's neither true nor right. It's not actual. You're fake. That's that's what he says to them. That's that's quite who gather their meaning, uh, perceive themselves to be to be a, a people based upon those things. He says, No, you're you're fake. You can claim to be that all you want, but you are fake. And then he continues, for they call themselves after the and stay themselves on, on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. You may call yourself whatever you want. You may say that, that you are this. You may say that you are that. But you're not. And then he's going to emphasize again that they stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts, or Yahweh, the Lord Almighty, the one who is, is the Lord of even all of the angel armies. They call themselves that, but he's going to say, you're not. So he's beginning by saying, you're fake. And he's going to continue down a whole line of, of things where essentially he's going to call them out for a bunch of different things. So uh, it, uh, I know in like modern management uh, principles and modern management techniques, you're supposed to say two positive things for every one negative thing that you say. The prophet and God who's giving the words to the prophet does not ascribe to that theory here because he's 
going to begin with a long list. In fact, uh, through the first uh, nine verses, he is going to again and again and again say, this is the problem with Jews. And the problem, first off, is that, that they're fake. They claim allegiance to God, but they don't want to live actual allegiance. It, it, it's just a name. And then he's going to say, the former things I declared of old, they went out of my mouth and I announced them. Then I did them and they suddenly came to pass. So it's a contrast. You guys are this. This is why you're this. I declare what will be. I declare the things that, that have come true. I announced them, I did them, then they came to pass. But then he says, but I know that you are obstinate. Your neck is as iron suited and your forehead as brass. In other words, you're stubborn, you're obstinate. You don't want to hear what God has to say to you. Uh, you could, could care less. You're about yourselves. And so they're fake and they're stubborn. That's, that's how he's beginning that. I declared them to you from old. Before they came to pass, I announced them. Lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. In other words, he said, I declared things that would happen, and I proved that I did it because your tendency, as we've made this point over, over several weeks, the tendency continually for them is to worship things that are not God. They have the God Almighty. They have Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. And their tendency is to go back to worship things made of, of metal, to worship things that, that have been carved. He said, I declared this and did it so that you could not claim that your worthless little idols did it. He said, you have heard, now see this, and will you not declare it from, from, from this time forth? I will announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago, before today, you have never heard of them. Lest you should say, behold, I knew them. So first off, he says, you're fake. Second off, you're stubborn. Third off, you're not entirely right because you worship metal images. You think that your metal image could do things. And, and fourth off, you're arrogant because I have to show that I did this and I have to declare that I did it because you would take credit for knowing you're... Um, have you ever, we call these people actually people in our family? Have you ever encountered an actually person? Let me explain what an actually person is. Uh, an actually person is a person that anytime you say something, they like to correct it by saying, actually, this, right? They are maybe colloquially known as know-it-alls, but, but they have a special way of just, just anything you say, they maybe will one-up. You, like, hey, I, I went to the orchard yesterday and an actually person, like, will finish that sentence for you. Like, I went to their, like, orchard uh, and I rode the hayride. Or you could say, I went to the orchard and had a hayride and they would say, like, I bought a horse, right? They're just kind of actually people. And so if you have conversations with actually people, you could say something, uh, something very basic, like, uh, Godwin Heights is, is on division, and they might say, actually, Godwin Heights is at 35, 35th Street. It does touch division, but actually, the address is. Well, essentially, what Isaiah is saying here is you're a bunch of actually people, right? Here's the thing about actually people. I think actually people, and we tell our kids about actually people all the time because we're trying to raise children who are not actually children because... Um, a lot of times I find that, that some parents are very proud of actually children, but most other people find them very annoying. So we talk about actually children, like don't be that 
child. But Isaiah said, you're, you're that child. You're that one. You're the know-it-all. You think you know everything. You want to talk. And so what, what he's saying is, I, I declared and did it so that you could not claim that you already knew it. Right? They go, oh, we, we knew that. That was us. That's us. There, he, he wants them to not be able to take credit for or claim to know those things that he that God himself has done. Lest you to say, behold, I knew them. So uh, they're, they're hypocrites, they're liars who, who claim to follow them. They're, they're stubborn, they're idolaters who, who worship graven images. And not only that, but they're, they're arrogant in their, their own knowledge or they're seeking after their own knowledge constant, or seeking after establishing that they know things Right, so that that's that's arrogance. It's all of those those sorts of things. So then he says, "You have never heard. You have never known. From your from of old, your ear has not been open." So basically, he says says to them, "Not only did you not know this, you've never known. Like you're not all that." Right is kind of what what he what he's saying there. Your ear has never been open to what it had to say, and that that kind of draws in all of it: the idolatry, the obstinance, the 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 arrogance, the 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 worshiping of, of idols. To uh, it, it draws all of that together, so as, as to say, this is who you are, right? And then he's going to continue. He says, "For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, so they're treacherous, and that from birth you were called a rebel." Okay, so here's God's description of, of these, these people. He says, you're fake because you claim to follow me and you don't. You, you are, are obstinate, you're, you're stubborn. So you're fake, you're stubborn. You're idolaters who are not really bright, but you think you are, so you're arrogant. In fact, you've never really known, you don't know things. You're treacherous, and from birth you were called a rebel. Here's here's the that's that's kind of all the things. And so uh, Isaiah starts off with those things. Goes listen, deal with who you are. This is exactly who you are, and he goes in on them right off, off the bat. And so he sets up this idea, and the idea that he's trying to set up is that that Israel uh, generally and Judah, who he's speaking to specifically, is evil. They're messed up. They're completely and totally messed up. In fact, how messed up are they? They're messed up from birth. You were, from before birth, you were called a rebel, right? That's a theological idea, right, that, that he's establishing there. And the theological idea that he's establishing there is this. Not only are they, they evil, but they were evil from before birth, right? Sometimes we think, and sometimes you'll hear things said. I hear this said a lot. Um, people don't have to learn such and such, or people aren't born such and such. They have to learn it, right? Uh, I hear that a lot of times um, in, in relation, I see memes, and that's typically in relation to, to racism. Children don't have to, ha children aren't born racist. They learn racism, which is a fun thing to say, but probably a falsehood, because in actuality what happens is that all children are born with, with, uh, with sin in, in their background. And so because of that sin and because they, because they like 
sin and we like ourselves more, we have a tendency to not like others. And so we may not dislike a person based upon their color, but we are born with a tendency to dislike people for any number of reasons because to dislike another is to elevate ourselves. And we have a tendency towards self-elevation, meaning that, that the kind of people that we are and the kind of people that he is referring to in this passage are one and the same, meaning we are born with, with uh, as, as rebels. And so... Uh, sometimes when I say this, people don't don't like it. Uh, I'm sure I've told you the, the story where I was trying to answer a question. I was standing, I was uh, raising funds to be a church planter, and I was standing in front of a whole congregation, and it was a question and answer, and somebody asked me uh, a question about about something, and I simply said to him, "Well, uh, the Bible teaches that." that we are born in sin, and the, the dude yelled at me, well, then the Bible is wrong, which is a very awkward and strange thing when you're visiting someone else's congregation and you're in front of, I think, about 300 people at that time. It was, I was like, well, this, don't know where to go with this. That's, that's awkward, right? And so sometimes people don't like when I say what I'm about to say, but, but, the Bible teaches that we were conceived in sin. The Bible here teaches that before birth, they were rebels. They were sinners, right? And so sometimes we like to have this idea of, of, of children and babies as pristine, as pristine and innocent and wonderful. And I would just say, if that is your, your take, you are either not a parent or you're a parent who has a much more optimistic view of, of your reality than I do because my observation, and I love my children, I love them deeply, but my observation of them is that they, they did not have to learn to sin. They took to it naturally, and they took to it very early, right? right? So, so the idea is, is that, that humanity is born in a way, in such a way that it is steeped and broken by sin, Right, And so we could go back and talk about how that happens. And the reason that happens is because though we were created good, we were created for good and created for relationship with God, created without sin, our great-great-grandparents and our great-great-grandfather Adam sinned. And because Adam sinned, that sin was communicated to all of the human race. You inherit that uh, ge uh, genetically, so to speak, just as you inherit the color of your eyes, uh, a lot of times the width of your body, the height of your body, the color of your skin, to all of those, those things. You are born, you have inherited sinfulness from the, your family line. You are a descendant of your great-grandfather, great-great-great-great great grandfather Adam he was a sinner he passed it on to you people don't like when I say that I say to you visit the home of a three-year-old right sometimes they say terrible twos my experiences is the terrible twos are warm-ups the threes are much worse so visit the home of a three-year-old if you can spend that much time with a three-year-old and be convinced that three-year-old is not a sinner you are an optimist and you are terribly wrong Right? And if you need to do this, if do it this way. Like, if you just can't conceive that your three-year-old is a sinner, go watch somebody else's. Way easier. Right? It's so much easier to, to pick out the sin and then somebody else's child. Right? So, not that I think that you should be routinely picking out the sin and somebody else's child. I'm just saying... That, that, is, that it's easier, right? If you need help, spend time with somebody else. Say, could you help me? I can't conceive that my child would ever be sinful. Spend time with somebody else. They will explain to you and walk you through the sinfulness of, of said child, right? So 
the, the idea here, though, is that God comes and he says to, 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 to Judah, says to Israel, you are sinful. And he describes their sinfulness. He describes them over and over and basically says, you don't worship me. You don't love me. You pretend to, but you worship things made out of metal. You're stubborn. You're not entirely as bright as you think you are, but you're so arrogant that you think you're super smart and you're just not. You're messed up. And in fact, you've been messed up since before you were born. You were rebels from before birth. It's a theological idea which simply makes this Bad news point that they were born steeped in sinfulness. We might use uh, the term, the theological term, um, two of them. One is original sin is, is the cause, and others they're born into it. And secondly, we might say that this is this is the concept of of total depravity, meaning that the human race is born with with depravity. When we say total depravity, we do not always mean that in the human sense that something is as awful and as sinful as it as it could be, but rather that every part of its existence is touched by, by sinfulness. That's kind of the idea. And that's who, who God tells Isaiah to go prophesy to. And then he's going to say this in verse 9. So keeping that in mind that they are an obstinate people that have been sinful from before birth, right? They were born to, to sin. He says this, for my name's sake, I will defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I will restrain it for you that I might not cut you off. The idea here then is this, is that God is talking to a people that he has chosen, right? We recognize, we, we use the, the term uh, in, in uh, almost... Uh, the term is used all over of, of the, the nation of Israel as the chosen people, right? They are God's chosen people. In history, God showed up on the scene and he declared himself to be their God. He declared them to be his people and he said, you will follow me now, right? And he sets them up with, with, uh, with leaders. He leads them the... the, the, uh, the the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, are, are the story of God's choosing of a people, choosing of a nation, Israel, uh, Judah, uh, uh, choosing of those people to be his people and choosing that he would be their, their God, right? That's the, the story of, of, all, of the, all of the Old Old Testament. And yet here he describes them and his description of them is that they were <laughs> they were rebels from before birth and that's like one of the nicest things he says about them in, in that passage. If you go backwards, his description of them is as completely and totally uh, sinful, right? You don't go, hey, that seems like a really good choice, right? It doesn't seem like when you go to make a choice uh, uh, of anything and you have to choose between those things, typically what you make is kind of a pro-con list. You might make it uh, you might actually write that down or you might do it in your head. But when you choose between things, you choose for a reason. Anything from going to buy a car, which you may choose based upon its gas mileage, its color, uh, its price. You might choose it for all of those sorts of reasons. Those are all based upon, upon pros. God is talking to a chosen, his chosen people and he does not seem to list any of their pros. Right. In fact, not only does he not list their pros, he says, I knew you would deal treacherously and that from before birth you were called a rebel. Right. Before they were born, before the nation came to be, the people were called rebels. And yet God chose them. Which then begs the, the question. If God knew 
that that's who they were, why did he choose them? Right? This is where the bad news starts to transition into a piece of very, very, very good news for us. Right? So God chooses them. And if you look at it, that choice cannot be based upon anything innate in them. Right? He said they're stubborn. They're obstinate. They're, 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 they're know-it-alls. They worship metal instead of him continually. They lie and say they follow him, but they're hypocrites. Uh, they're treacherous. From before birth, they were called rebels. He brings about their birth, guys. His choosing brings about the birth of, of that nation. But he says from before birth, they were called rebels, which means that God chose them in full awareness of who they were and what they were. God, if he's God, he continually refers, I am Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. I am Yahweh, the Lord Almighty. He has all might, all power. But also he is then all-knowing. He is omniscient. He is the creator of, of these people. He can choose based upon anything. And the point that, that Isaiah is making is that he chose them based upon nothing innate in them. Nothing good innate in them, right? And so we use uh, this reference, and I... I think it's good because it makes sense if you were choosing a sports team right if you're choosing a sports team if you're going to choose that team you are going to choose that based upon something innate or something about those athletes right if you are going to put together a basketball team you are going to choose based upon skill which means if we go you can pick anybody in the world you would pick stephon curry stephen curry and not dave drake to lead your basketball team right so for those of you who didn't understand what i said if you are going to choose your own superhero team you would not start with dave drake you would start with with Iron Man, or if you don't like Iron Man, Captain America. I've been clear on where I am in the Iron Man, Captain America thing, right? I start Iron Man. You might start with Captain America. But you would not start with Dave Drake because in the superhero, I got no skills, right? You have to choose based upon something. Iron Man is super intelligent. Iron Man has a, a suit that will do things. Iron Man has... Jarvis, if you want to choose Captain America, he has whatever that was that they injected into his, his veins that made him go from the scrawny kid into the big strong guy. You know, he's got all of those good characteristics, his leadership. You could choose one of those. What you would not choose, though, if you're putting together a superhero team is Dave Drake because Dave Drake is not a superhero, right? That is, is the logic behind it. You choose and we choose teams based upon that. Uh, if you want to go more personal, if you are going to choose for yourself a bride, you do not choose, you choose that bride based upon a lot of characteristics, but you choose them based upon something, right? You could choose them based upon their looks, which is not a good thing if that is all you choose them on, right? I have chosen you based 100%. That's probably not a good system, but looks are important. Right? They should at least be attractive to you. If they're not, that's problematic. You choose them based upon their personality. I hope you're making a wise decision among them. You choose them based upon whether they make you smile, whether they make you laugh, whether they make you a better person. But when you choose a spouse, if you choose a bride, you choose that based upon characteristics about them. What we do not do is go, 
Listen, this person is ugly. And when I say ugly, I mean they're ugly inside and out. I mean, like, they look like a gargoyle and they act like one too, right? Like, they're, they're obstinate, they're annoying, they're ugly inside and out. They smell bad. I don't get along with them. They're not faithful because they work in the area of prostitution on the side. But I'm going to marry that person. We do not choose based upon that, right? That is how human choice works. The point here of this is that God, in his wisdom, somehow chose Israel, and it met none of the criteria. It wouldn't have met the criteria if you were choosing a basketball team. It wouldn't have met the criteria if you're choosing a superhero. It definitely would not have met the criteria if you are choosing a spouse. There was nothing innate or, 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 or basic to them that said, that's a great choice. God chose them simply because God wanted to choose them. He chose them knowing then that they were rebels. He chose them knowing that they had nothing particular in their existence that you would say that is beauty beauty about them. He chose them knowing that they were know-it-alls. He chose them knowing that they were arrogant. He chose them knowing that they would have a tendency towards idols. That's why later on, one of the prophets, Hosea, describes this nation like a prostitute who continues her unfaithfulness again and again. And God has to go buy back from the pimp his own bride. That, that's how these people are described, just so you understand. There's nothing innate about them, nothing about them that convinces them. God chooses them because he wants to. And so God, having chosen them as rebels, knowing that they would be rebels, says this, For my sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my name, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. What he's saying here is this, is I chose you. And because I chose you, if I were to cut you off, it would look bad upon my choice. It would look as if I had made the wrong choice. It would look as if I had given up. But my choices are not bad. My choices are right. My choices are good. My choices are my choices. And I don't cut you off because if I cut you off in your sinfulness, which is the same sinfulness and brokenness in which I chose you, nation of Israel, if I, if I cut you off, that would reflect badly on my choice. And I am God. There is no other. He continually refers to his own name. I am Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. I am he. And he refers to himself so for the sake of his name, Yahweh. He doesn't cut them off. Why? Because to cut them off would say that he had made the wrong choice or that he did not have the, the power, that he did not have the strength, that he did not have the ability to persevere, to make them into the nation that he, that he had chosen. So for the sake of his name, he doesn't cut them off. Even when they wander, even when they worship other things, even when they invest their, 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 their energy into metal objects and attribute the works of the Almighty to the works of the all-metal, he still doesn't cut them off. Why? Because it's for his name that he is saved. In his, I said to you that there was nothing in a, in you or in them. We'll get to you in a minute. And there's nothing in a, in them that made him Choose them. Yet it was for the sake of his own name. So that 
apparently somehow in his choosing this obstinate people and demonstrating his faithfulness to this obstinate people and carrying them through to the fullness of what they were supposed to be in his ability to carry this people and persevere with these people his name was made great his name was made exalted his name was made known and so God's choice of them even though there was nothing about them by which they should have been chosen, is a great comfort to them because they were chosen as rebels and they will, be, they, will be, uh, they will persevere through the work of God as rebels. They won't be cut off, not because of them, but because of him, because of his choice, so that his name, for my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I might not be cut off. Verse 10, behold, I've refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. That honestly is why I chose this passage. That verse, behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Right? So they probably are saying to themselves, why are we going through this? Why did we go through that? Why is... Is, is, are we constantly being taken over and ruled by other kings who rule us harshly? Why are we constantly, constantly hated? All the nations around us hate us and they try and kill us. Why are they trying to wipe us out? Why this struggle? Why this pain? Why this hurt? That's what the nation's asking. And God says, here's why. I have refined you, but not as one would refine silver. I've refined you in the furnace of affliction, right? So this is the best bad news you'll ever get, right? This is the bad, best bad news you'll ever get. Here's the reality. They are going to go through continually these struggles. They're going through struggles, and they, they're, they're going through it, and it's going to hurt, and it's going to be painful. It uses the word furnace, right? It, it, it is going to be a painful process, but... That pain is not without meaning. Listen, people, I find sometimes that people will dislike the basis of the message that we're constructing here. And they'll say, well, I don't like that. How could you say that? How could you say that? Because what it comes down to is this idea is that into the life of those who would follow God, follow this God, bad things will at times happen. Afflictions at times will come. And sometimes people don't like it when I say that it is God who allows or, in, in this case, ordains that that affliction might come upon the people. People don't like when I say that, but do you realize what the alternative is? You have two alternatives. The alternative is to say, no, it's only the devil who brings affliction upon us. Then, if the devil has the power to willy-nilly bring affliction upon you, you must worry because can God really defeat that devil? Because that devil seems to me to have altogether too much power. I do not want to live in a world where the devil is the one who gets to decide what happens and what does not happen to me. That's a bad, bad, bad idea. And in fact, if the devil's functioning like that, he's functioning like, like some sort of god. Right? But, and then there's other people go, no, I didn't say the devil. It's just we can't know. God has nothing to do with it. There is no God. Everything then is meaningless. Right? You can choose to say, I don't like the idea of a God who would use afflictions to refine a people. That's fine, but the reality is you live in a world where afflictions come. 
You live in a world where afflictions are not going to pass you by. You live in a world where as sure as you breathe, affliction will come. If you say that you do not like a God who allows and ordains and uses those afflictions, then you need to understand this. You are going through affliction and it is meaningless. Your existence is meaningless, your pain is meaningless, and everything is struggle. You will walk through it, and you may get to the other side. If you do, you do, but there is no purpose in your affliction. Frankly, I find that to be a much more disturbing world to live in than to accept that the God of the universe uses affliction for the good of his people. He is refining them in the furnace of affliction. Why? So that they might come out of the furnace as his people, his children, refined. Refined. Better. There's meaning in affliction. It's doing something in them. Behold, I've refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction. Nobody likes affliction, but as sure as you live and breathe, it will come. Is it not better to know that the God of the universe who is in control of all things might be using that affliction for the good of your soul and for the praise of his name? Says it again, for my own sake, for my own sake. Says it twice, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. How should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. What he's saying is this, I'm doing it. I have called you as a people. I called you in the midst of your rebellion as a rebellious people, not as a good people, not as a worthy people, not as a people with anything to commend them, not because you were a strong nation, not because you were a beautiful nation, not because of any of that. I called you as treacherous rebels before your birth. I knew that would be, but I called you and I formed you and I made you. <coughs> and for my name's sake, I'm not going to stop making you I'm going to continue to make you. I'm going to try you. Sometimes in the furnace of affliction, you're going to go through struggle, but the result of that struggle is refining so that for the sake of my name, for my own name, I might be glorified. Now, some people don't naturally get excited about hearing that God might be glorified. You might say then, well, what's in it for me? What's in it for me if it's all about God's name getting the glory? Well, first off, what's in it for you is that it seems to say that the way in which God will receive his glory is by taking you, holding you, keeping you, not cutting you off, not throwing you away, not getting rid of you, not leaving you to your own devices, but rather by keeping you. Though you're stubborn, though you're obstinate, though you're sinful, though you're treacherous, though you're an idolater, it seems to say that God is going to keep his people, those that are his, which means there is not a thing that you can do to ever separate yourself from God. That's why it says in, it says in Romans that there's nothing you can do to separate yourself from the love of God. See, if this is the God, he does not change. And this is who God is in Isaiah. This is who God is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Romans. Right? See, he's, he's putting into place a plan and he's carrying it out. But we know that's where it goes back. It said earlier in this passage, he was going to declare to them new things. The heart of the new things he declared is that there was coming in time and coming in history the servant that we talked about a couple weeks ago 
the servant. And we've talked about how the servant is fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. See, because you need to understand you're tried not only in the furnace of your afflictions, but you're also perfected in the furnace of his afflictions. So that what you get, I, you, I'm not asking anyone to enjoy the bad news part of this. I'm not asking you to go, yeah, I love affliction. But I am saying this to you. It is extremely good news to know that God, for the sake of his own glory and for the sake of his own name, will not cut you off. And I know some people you don't see around here. We kind of get excited about God's glory because we're affirmers of what it says in, in, in the Westminster Catechism that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that's not, that's not specific in this, this passage but it's still true, and so what we believe is this, is that you were made with a purpose, you were created with a purpose. Adam and Eve, your great-great-grandparents, entered into sin, and it disrupted the purpose, but you will never be fulfilled, you will never find meaning, you will never find wholeness, and you'll never find joy apart from God's glory, right? So that's kind of outside the passage, but that's, that's the good news that lies, lies behind it. So here, let me, let me take Israel's thing, and I know we've kind of... We've kind of crossed those, but let me take Israel's thing one more time and, and make it uh, make it germane to you and germane to me. Here's the reality. You and I are certainly obstinate. You and I are certainly hypocrites, right? That That's just a reality. You and I certainly claim the name of Jesus with our lips, with our worship, with all kinds of things, and often our actions and our hearts don't match up to our claims. We are certainly hypocrites. We are certainly stubborn and obstinate, right? Have you ever met yourself in that moment where you talk to yourself about, why am I doing this sin? Do I really believe that this sin is better than following Jesus? And you know that it's not, but you can't convince your heart, so you do the sin instead, right? Because we're obstinate. We're, we're obstinate. We do foolish things. We are stubborn. We cannot be convinced at our, at our core level that to follow the actual God of the universe is, to, is better than following the God who is ourselves, which leads us to the, this. We are idolaters. You go, well, I don't worship metal. No, no, you worship you. You worship you, and so do I. We all worship ourselves. If you want to know what your idol is, I say it all the time, go to your bathroom look into the mirror, and most days, there is your God, right? You are an idolater. I am an idolater. We are actually people, right? But we're so foolish that we say actually, not just in our in our, our everyday conversations, but we dare say actually to the God of the universe. God says, here's the way to be. Here's the way to live. And we go, actually, God, I think this would be a little better choice for me right now. Right? And how foolish is it to be people who will say actually to the God of the universe, but we do it? We don't hear. We don't listen. We're treacherous in our dealings. We don't like to hear of ourselves as treacherous. That seems so, so deep. But think about your heart, right? We, we like to do a lot of times in our actions, like the things we actually do instead of realizing that your sin impulses in the things you actually think, right? You might not actually shoot your boss, but you thought it, right? You might not actually say that thing, but you thought it, 
right? Your heart is treacherous. Psalm 149 says, you were conceived in sin. It's echoed here. This nation was called rebel before birth. The uniform testimony of scriptures that you were born an enemy and a rebel of God. That's who you were. And yet, the good news of scripture is this, is that Ephesians 1, 4 says this, that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Right? God chose us. In that God chooses Israel, God chooses you, and he chooses me. And so here's where the good news starts to mix with the, with the bad news. So, so he chose you. So you're wanted by God. And I can't explain to you, like I can't look at you and go, listen, the reason God chose you is because you're just so cute. Or the reason God chose you is because you're just so smart. Or the reason God chose you is because you're just so rich. Or you're just so this. This is what I can tell you is that God, in the, in the goodness of his own sovereign will and for the sake of his own name, chose you if you know him. And if you know him and he chose you, here's, here's the good news. Is that sometimes people get into this debate about, can a person lose their salvation? Well, what if a person does this? And can a people, here, here's the thing. I think scripture is uniform, but if you read this chapter, that idea is, 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 is foolishness, right? You cannot lose your salvation. Why? Because you didn't you did obtain your salvation, right? The, the idea, or, or to say it like that, you didn't find it, right? We talked about this a, a couple weeks ago where he kept saying, this has been revealed to you. This has been shown to you. Why? Because it's supernatural. Your salvation comes upon you supernaturally, not by some sort of amazing detective work, not by some sort of amazing, amazing uh, active uh, work of, uh, of your own goodwill. Your salvation comes to you as a dead man in the grave, as a resurrection, not as a sick man searching for a cure. Right? You were dead in your transgression, Scripture says, and you were made alive. Your salvation comes to you not because you found it. And if you didn't find it, you can't lose it. What I'm saying then is that salvation, as it says in Scripture, belongs to our God. He is the one who gives it to you. He is the one who rescues you. And I can say without... Um, without blushing or, or, or without equivocating that this is a fact that the man who has been saved by God will persevere until he sees God face to face. There is no way in which he can lose that which he never found. It is God and God alone who gave it. And God and God alone says this, as sure as he said it to Israel, he says it to all of his people. For my name's sake, I defend for my anger, for the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. How should my name be profaned? My glory I will not share with another. If it is up to you to keep yourself saved, that is a shared glory. Good for you. Nice work. Nice job. But here's the thing. God is not interested in sharing the glory of your salvation with you. He wants all the glory for your salvation. He wants all the glory for your perseverance. He wants all the glory for the fact that one day you and I, if we know him, will be before him and we will touch him and we will see him and we will sing to him and we will live for him and we will sin no more and live forever in perfect righteousness with him. If you know him, it is God who is going to bring you to that place, not because of you, but because of him for his own sake. For his own sake, he does it. For his name should not be profaned. 
his glory, he will not give to another. And that includes you and me. And that is the greatest news ever. Because we are always trying to share in his glory. Right? I don't know about, about you, but sometimes, to me, the appearance of holiness and the appearance of righteousness so that other people will think I'm cool or think I'm good or think I'm this is more important to me than actual holiness. Why? Because I am seeking my own glory. Not only that, oftentimes I, I seek my own uh, my own glory in thinking that, that God saved me, but if I want God to love me, I've got to measure up to this standard, and then I get convinced in my own head, and then I set up my own rules, and the coolest thing about designing your own rules of what it means to be loved by God is they're easier to follow, right? If you set up your own rules, you just make sure that you don't set up any rules that are things that you actually like to do. Right, And so it is easy for me to start to think that I somehow share in my salvation. But, but God is not interested in sharing with me. It's for his own sake and the sake of his own name. His glory he's not going to give to another. And that includes you and me. And it's the best news ever. Because if you share in your salvation, he has to share his glory with you. The bad news is, is you know objectively, if you're honest with yourself, that you just don't measure up like that, right? You don't. And so the flip side is that if you have to share, if God needs to share his glory with you because of your part in your salvation, and you've got to keep yourself saved, and you've got to keep it, I have bad news. You are all going to hell, and I will meet you there. You do not have what it takes to share in the glory great news is you don't need to. God is not interested in sharing his glory with you. And the, the good news is, is that in as much as God saves you, he keeps you and he will persevere with you. The good news is, is for those moments when you wake up and you know that you know that you know that you know the Savior, but your behavior is a disgusting affront even to you, the good news is, is that God saved you knowing God, when he rescued you, was not unaware of the sins that you would commit today. And he's not unaware of the sins that you'll commit tomorrow. And he's not unaware of the sins you'll commit to the day that you die. And yet he, for the sake of his own glory and for the sake of his own name, chose treacherous rebels to display it because he wanted to. And there's not a thing that you can do to disrupt it. There's not a thing that you can do to, to ruin it. God is not interested. So then, we can say, perhaps not happily, but we can say at least with understanding that when we walk through moments of affliction, God has not walked away from us, but that he is near to us, and that the affliction is the furnace of refinement, so that he could make us into what he wants us to be. Vassals for his glory, vassals for his honor. So then that the good news, I mean the bad news, becomes really good news. May we inhabit that, may we uh, may we meditate on that. May we use that for, for comfort in moments of affliction. 
we, may we use that to turn moments of self-hatred into moments of praise of God, right? Because sometimes I think we think that because we think we're sharing in, in our salvation, we think we're adding something to it, that we go through that moment that we're so sinful that we're like, oh, I did nothing to add to my salvation today. May we take that moment uh, that moment of self-hatred, that moment when you committed that sin that you were so tired of committing but you just cannot stop committing and you hate yourself in the moment that you commit it. May you take that moment of self-hatred and use that to turn it into a moment of worship. May you flip it, right? Because that is an accusation from, from the devil and that is an accusation that, that, that God cannot want you, God cannot love you, God cannot care for you, that your sin separates you from God, God that, that your sin brings you too far. No, God dealed with, dealt with your separation problem in the cross, in Jesus at the cross. You are not separated from him. And use those moments of, of self-hatred to turn them into moments of worship because understand this, you did not and do not contribute a thing to your salvation. You did not and do not contribute a thing to finishing uh, uh, your, 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 your sanctification, right? Uh, you are being refined by God. So that when you wake up and you walk out of the furnace of affliction, you realize that God has created in you better character and you begin to behave more and more and more like, like Jesus you don't get to take the credit for that. But rather you turn that to God and you use that as an opportunity to bring him worship. And so may that create in us um, hope. Okay. So uh, pray with me. God, I feel...